Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your day is going well. I'm excited that we're going to have some time together, and I hope that uh, the programming in the next two hours is superb. I hope you love it. I hope you grow in your faith. Here's what I've got coming up. Uh, now, Rob Bluey, who is usually my Tuesday guest because he is uh, my Washington, D.C. correspondent, he went ahead and took his family on a vacation, so I don't know what that's about, but Mike Howell is going to be uh, sitting in for him today, and Mike is the Senior Advisor of Government Relations at the Heritage Foundation, and then Peter Waller is going to be coming into the studio as well. We're going to talk to him about his amazing ministry and what's going on with him, and then in Hour 2, Jeff Redorn going to be in studio. We're going to uh, talk about Psalm 22 today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all coming up on the show today. Uh, Mike Howell is awfully nice to be uh, filling in for Rob Bluey today, and we always enjoy when he can come on the program, and we're glad he can make it today. Mike, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me in those kind words. Well, it it's true, and uh, you are a, a straight shooter, and you, you don't min- mince your words, and I know that you speak from a conservative standpoint, and that is going to be not always welcome, when people listen, of course, but that's what it is. You're absolutely right. We need to, there's a lot going on right now. We need to be able to cut through it and present what's really happening in the world. And the conservative viewpoint doesn't always get a lot of play out there. It doesn't. And so I appreciate that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about um, mask mandates. Am I going to have to fish my unwashed cloth mask out of my glove compartment and put it on again? It certainly looks that way, especially depending on where you live. I think if you live in a a blue state or a blue city, it's all but assured that that's coming back in one form or, or another. I mean, the, the federal government has learned a, a thing or two about how to go about uh, mandating these, so to speak, as much as they can. Uh, you're seeing a pretty big alliance right now between corporate America uh, and the, using the tools of, of power through the federal government to kind of mandate these things in places of large gathering. Uh, and so whether they take the form of the federal government, you know, saying you have to wear a mask or a city saying you must wear a mask, I think it's all but assured that and as a you know, pattern of practice in your life, wherever you go, uh, places will be having these mask mandates uh, rear their, their head again. I think it's some Cities, it will be certainly mandated. I mean, I'm here in D.C., and we got the mask mandate back for, for indoors. I, I think you're, you can rest assured if you're in a, a city of any you know, medium to major population, that that's coming back as, as well, as well as restrictions on gatherings of certain sizes. I saw Dr. Mike Osterholm on, uh, I think it was, I saw a clip of him on CNN the other day, and he is a Minnesota uh, doctor, so I always kind of perk up when I see him because I've known about him for a long time. He was the state's epidemiologist uh, for quite a while. Uh, but he said that the cloth masks don't seem to do much, and that if you really wanted real protection, you'd need an N95 mask, which I would think would be awfully difficult for most people to uh, to wear or to 
um, conduct their lives wearing. I mean, even doctors complain about how difficult they are to wear. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I prefer the masks that are like, you know, the gator thing you wear around your neck and right. you pull up over your, over your nose as you go about your day. I find them more convenient, but those are wholly unacceptable. I mean, the thing about the masks is that the science has never really been perfect on it. I mean, we did a study at Heritage and found that the 97 counties uh, with the most COVID had some of the most stringent mask mandates there. So there's not necessarily a, a causal effect between masks usage and lower COVID transmission rates. Um, and I don't think, you know, these cloth masks that people buy over the counter are also common are, are necessarily the ones that in the studies they would cite as absolutely the most effective, like the N95. A lot of this is, you know, you guys well know, is a certain amount of COVID theater uh, mm-hmm. to remind people that, you know, you're still under this kind of regime and to behave uh, accordingly. Yeah, I suppose if you were going to have a gigantic sneeze or something, a cloth mask would certainly help, you know, mitigate some of that. But it seems the way a lot of them uh, are worn by people, some, some wear them as a chin strap, and I'm thinking, mm, that's not helping. Right, and you, you have to wonder how much people, you know, are kind of at their wit's end with this. I, I give tremendous credit to the American people for, you know, the most part, uh, doing what they were asked to. But it's gotten to the point where, you know, we're how far into this, and I... I I think expecting people to have, you know, the, the mask over their nose at all times is just unrealistic from a practical standpoint. Say what you will about the efficacy of it, but we all walk around and, and see how they're worn. Not to mention where I'm in D.C., it's, you know, in the mid-90 degrees. Try right. that on, you know, the metro, an air-conditioned subway car. Uh, it's hard to expect people to, you know, be in, in full compliance. And it also adds this just terrible kind of social interaction where everyone's looking over their shoulders. People are giving each other dirty looks. It's one one keeps things possible to see people's facial expressions. I have a six month year you know, a six month old daughter and I worry that, you know, for the first six months of her life she's missed out on a, a key learning ability by being able to see, you know, how people interact is we communicate so much nonverbally with right. our with our mouths and our facial expressions. And it's just really, you know, it takes a lot from, from from life itself when you can't see how your, you know, fellow citizen is, you know, you know, feeling a lot of the, our cues are, are nonverbal in this regard. Think of, you know, if you accidentally cut someone off on the sidewalk or, or something, usually we communicate our apology for mm-hmm. that by, you know, a smile, a nod, a, you know, something like that. And that, that kind of nonverbal communication tool is taken away. It adds just a, a bad element to our day-to-day lives, you know, on, on top of the fact that who knows what the actual efficacy of these things are. Yeah. If my guest sounds like Mike Hall, it's because it is Mike Hall. He's a senior advisor of government relations at the Heritage Foundation, sitting in today for uh, the one and only Rob Bluey. So we're glad to have Mike with us today. Uh, Mike, I know almost very uh, next to nothing about the eviction moratorium. Would you explain that? Sure, absolutely. So uh, last year, the CDC, you know, which obviously is the Center for Disease Control, uh, took a very unusual step in that they basically told all private business, you know, renters or, or, or landlords, rather, that they could not evict anyone. It was illegal to kick someone out if they weren't paying you rent on the basis of, you know, the COVID pandemic. Clearly, this is not in the CDC's realm of authority. They have no authority over private contractual relations. Uh, nonetheless, this thing uh, was, was challenged in court, and so it remained in effect during that, that time period. Uh, just about a month or so ago, it wound up before the Supreme Court where uh, the justices, and then Brett Kavanaugh actually was deciding to go the other way, said, hey, this thing probably is unconstitutional. The government doesn't have the power to do this. 
but it's winding down, so we're just going to let it go away. So when it was set to expire, um, there was a Congress refused to renew it, and the administration refused to act or have CDC renew it. There was a big uh, flare-up, actually, and a lot of you know progressive members of Congress said, "Hey, this thing can expire if people aren't paying their rent. You still can't kick them out." And so what the administration just announced today. They're going to go ahead and extend it again, despite the fact that there's not really a legal basis to do this. Now, in practical effect, nobody wants to see people who can't, you know, afford to pay their rent because they've been put out of work because of COVID, on, you know, out on the streets. But that's not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is we've done in the federal government, state and local governments, tons in the way of providing assistance to those who have been you know, economically affected by COVID. But unfortunately, what, what had happened is people weren't using that money to pay their rent. I saw one study that said something about $46 billion that went to rental assistance. Only $3 billion of that money was actually used to pay back rent. So now you have people who have essentially, for a lack of better term, coasted on their rent for you know a, a year or so uh, who were faced with these mounting eviction bills. And so the solution, of course, in the government is, uh, well, let's just extend it and kick the can a little bit down the road because there is enough of a far-left uh, backlash about this. I mean, there are all sorts of you know terrible cases. I saw one case where there was a elderly woman who, who may have been a Holocaust survivor up in Martha's Vineyard, uh, wanted to return back to her home, you know, that she was renting, but there was a squatter there who was refusing to get out, and now this woman had no place to go because they were citing the eviction moratorium, saying you just can't kick me out because it's illegal to kick me out. All you have to do is basically, you know. Uh, a test and some sort of paperwork that you can't pay your rent because of COVID. And that's where it ends. There isn't this much in the way of actually testing whether someone's actually holding out because they don't feel like paying or because they, they can't pay. And it's one of these well-intentioned government programs that always has, you know, the perverse effect uh, of being abused and growing to something it's it's not meant to be. And this is what we're going to see across the board with all these COVID-type programs, whether it's paying people not to work, you know, uh, or these unemployment benefits that are, that are running out. Uh, it's time to get the economy back going and then people back back to you know business as usual. But you know these programs inhibit that, and uh, that's what we're seeing right now with the eviction moratorium getting extended. You know yet again. Yeah, Mike. Thank you for that explanation. Mike Hall is my guest. Um, Mike, Brandon Tatum caught my attention a little over a year and a half ago. He was an interesting uh, former. Uh, African-American police officer from Tucson. And there's an interesting article up at the Daily Signal about uh, America is not so racist after all. Did you get a chance to see that article? Can you share with uh, listeners about that? Well, Brendan Tatum's a great patriot. I, I'm not, I don't have that article right in front of me, but I'm well familiar with his work and, yeah. and our work here on the issue of systemic racism. I think under the leadership of our president, you know, Ms. K. Coles James, a remarkable African-American civil rights leader, she's, you know, been really at the forefront of, of this debate and pushing back against this notion that America is a systemically racist country. It, you know, very frankly, is not. America is probably uh, the most welcoming, accepting, and tolerant nation uh, on the earth. And the, the stats bear this out in every uh, which regard you can make it. No other country makes more efforts to kind of make more people at home and to have a more neutral and colorblind system of law than, than we do. We make every attempt to remove any consideration of race from the law. And if there is such a consideration, as you know, it's unconstitutional if the court is sold up. But what we're seeing right now is that colorblindness isn't working for a lot of people in this country who have designs on, you know, a uh, far left takeover, to, to be frank with you and your listeners, uh, of this country and to use race as the means by which to divide all of us. You know, most commonly this takes the form of, of critical race theory, people who believe 
that every single outcome in society is necessarily explained by, you know, the evil uh, origins of racism in this country. That's something that they're aiming to teach our children in schools, uh, you know, as early as elementary school. It's something that is appearing in corporate boardrooms, you know. It's not just elementary schools. You could be in, you know, well into your career in your late 60s, and you'll still be forced to go on these corporate retreats of, you know, whether it's a privilege walk where everyone's divided into groups based off what race they are and met to atone for uh, whatever privileges they are deemed to hold. It's a really corrosive type of uh, theology, because I, I call it a theology specifically as opposed to an ideology, because it's really taken the place of religion for a lot of people on the left. They view this as the kind of most important guiding and uh, fundamental truth to America, that America is so racist that everything we do has to always hold that into, as its central premise. Uh, and that's something we push back very firmly against. And I know Brandon is in a very, very strong voice in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have had response from listeners who have argued your point, and I'm just recognizing them as well because they're probably hearing you again and thinking uh, they're they're at it again. So I'm just trying to add a little balance. But uh, Mike, let me take a little break. Mike Hall is my guest. He's senior advisor in government relations for the Heritage Foundation. We'll be right back. Glad to have Mike Howell on today. He is filling in for Rob Bluey. He's the Senior Advisor for Government Relations at the Heritage Foundation. As we look at college campuses getting ready for the uh, school year coming up, uh, Mike, it seems that a lot of uh, campuses have got this vast network now of diversity, equity, and inclusion staffers, and they're kind of gobbling up school budgets. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. We just published what really was a landmark study on this, and I encourage your listeners to go to heritage.org. It's a piece by, by Jay Green, who's a Ph.D. with us. And basically what it shows is that the, what we call the administrative bloat at these universities has really taken hold. And by administrative bloat, I mean people who work for you know the universities, and keep in mind these are in many cases people directly on the budget, uh, you know, the payroll of taxpayers – but in other cases, uh, if it's a private university, the only reason the school's in business is because taxpayers guarantee loans to, you know, pay for students to go there. So any which way you cut it, uh, there is a, a public nexus to a lot of these institutions. But there's been a huge takeover, not, you know, of more professors uh, getting on staff, but of administrators dedicated to this idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, or what is, you know, termed DEI for, for short. And what we found is that this hasn't even contributed to the task that they're supposedly trying to solve. That is, you know, making for an environment in which people feel that it's a you know, more uh, uh, racially accepting and, uh, you know, overall a, a accepting and, and a comfortable place for folks. What we've seen is, you know, people are actually more upset about these issues. You know, even I'm a graduate of Duke University, and you would never guess that, in, in, you know, visiting and talking to students there, so this is a, a great place to go to school and, and to learn. No, quite the opposite. 
everyone, you know, or not everyone, I shouldn't say, but a lot of people there feel like they're just in a grieved, oppressed status where everyone is out to get them on account of some sort of characteristics, whether it be race, you know, gender identity, religion, what have you. And so what these DEI kind of administrative board have done instead of solving a problem have, have just like instilled this increased consciousness of this, you know, interclass race and religion uh, uh, contention between between folks in schools, and that's really not the purpose of our higher education should be whatsoever. We have a we have a big uh, national issue to solve right now in our competition with China. Uh, you know, in the technology sphere, obviously we have a you know the COVID pandemic, which we should be gearing our our best and brightest minds. To, you know, people who are capable and interested in public health careers. Uh, our humanities right now, our, our, our civic and historical education in this country is at a, a critically low moment. And uh, instead, we're basically turning our schools into these factories of, of the woke. And it has a lot to do with the fact that that's, you get what you pay for. When you, when you fund all of these positions to have administrators whose job it is uh, to go out and find you know, causes for them to quote-unquote solve – Guess what they're going to do? They're going to find more cases of oppression, whether made up or, or, or not. And that's what we're really seeing. And so I'm really proud of this study we put together because it's really one of the first places to kind of uh, take a comprehensive look at it. And the evidence is, is frankly overwhelming. Yeah. The study found that the average university has 45.1 people tasked with promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you look at the University of Michigan, they have 163 personnel that's a big number it's it's a gigantic number and it's also a real shame when we talk about the cost of tuition for you know a lot of our you know youth it's people are going to be saddled with enormous amounts of debt in addition to that you know graduate college with this kind of notion that this country is some terrible systemically racist place and what are supposed to be some of the most educational fun years of their life are instead going to be spent chasing boogeymen and then they're going to leave this you know university without the degree that we so badly need them to have and they should have it. So they're just going to have a mountain of college debt and then a chip on their shoulder about how awful the world is. Yeah. So when, when donors are providing money for higher education, is this really what they're wanting to sign up for and invest in is more programs like this and more personnel that's bloating the budget? No, absolutely not. And these these schools have become such masters in the way of their development offices and the way they advertise it. I mean, most people in this country are, are, you know, very goodwill. If they hear that, you know, a campus is committed to, you know, having a race-neutral kind of uh, environment, of course that's something we all support because it's something that we all think is foundational to the way we run this country. You know, it's not something that uh, the, you know, the the development office and these universities will be up front where – no, this is not something they're seeking to promote and kind of uh, maintain. It's it's their core mission in that they're trying to use it as a as a way to basically indoctrinate students into you know their far left causes. Because if you if you convince a student that through an administrator that the world is so you know uh, disoriented that everyone is at each other's throat, what you're going to do is create more warriors for your cause to go out and solve that problem. So these administrators are basically. And again, I go back to my point of this is their theology. They're basically recruiting and converting people to their worldview to go out and to be, you know, soldiers and, and in this in this cause. It's truly un- unfortunate. But again, you you get what you pay for. And if you're looking at sending your 
child to a, a higher uh, education institution, I think that's one of the first questions you should ask is how many, um, you know, DEI administrators they have. I think that is probably one of the best ways to, to really figure out if this is an institution committed to higher learning or higher wokeism. Mm-hmm. Mike, what do you know about NPR and allowing reporters to do some direct activism? Right. And so I saw this story come out the, the other day and basically they're allowing their reporters to break, you know, what we would call the, you know, the, the, the wall between, you know, a reporter and an activist. Usually we expect our, our media uh, journalists to be in the business of, of finding truth and reporting the truth. And, you know, in order to do that, it is important to have not only no bias uh, in the heart of, you know, the, the journalist, but not even in the perception of, you know, the journalists, how people could perceive them. Now, we all know that NPR and your CNN, they're, they're by and large bleeding heart liberals. That will surprise absolutely no one. But at least for a little bit, there was a truce where they would hide it a little bit, and it wouldn't be so in your face. You wouldn't have a, a reporter by day and a, a bleeding heart activist by night. But NPR decided in the interest of, you know, uh, by the urging of basically their newsrooms and their reporters and these personalities, that it is okay for them to go out and engage in their social justice causes uh, of the day. And so NPR, who is funded by our U.S. tax dollars, uh, now has reporters who are blatantly and on the record, you know, promoting things that I would call anti-family, anti-marriage, redefinitions of sexuality, whether it's child or children getting, you know, cross-gender hormones and things like that, these are their causes. And so they will, you know, go out and promote them, whether, you know, mainly on Twitter, but in their activism, and then, you know, turn around the next day and expect to present us with a, a news story that we're supposed to take as an unbiased reporting of actual fact. I'm actually in a roundabout way a little bit glad that they did this because at least gets away of the pretense of the, the fact that these people are unbiased. Of course, it's a terrible thing for journalism, and it shouldn't be the case, but uh, I think it's high time that we recognize that NPR is not serving the American taxpayer by providing us kind of, you know, unbiased, uh, you know, re- reporting. At least it's they're, – they're upfront about the fact now that they're just woke activists. Yeah. Mike, I just have a minute left. Is there anything hot off the press? I mean, was there uh, news out about President Biden commenting on Andrew Cuomo? Right. So, so Governor Biden called for, for Cuomo to resign today. I mean, it's, it's about high time, but this shows that President Biden's really not a leader. Uh, there's not a whole bunch of the way of new facts that different than anything everyone knew pretty much a few months ago. There's a new investigation that came out that made things look worse. But uh, this should have been something that was called for many, many months ago. And that's something I, I'll be remiss if I didn't mention is we got new numbers on the border crisis uh, for last month, it is over a uh, 200,000 illegal apprehensions at the border, which is basically a, a record for the last 20 so years. And it culminates of a, a five month upward upward trend. Things are really getting out of control down there. Mm-hmm. And it's going all throughout the country. People are crossing the border and they go, they don't stay in Texas, Arizona or New Mexico. They're going throughout the country and they're not being tested for COVID. Yeah. Mike, Mike thank you so much for uh, being on the program today. I appreciate you very much. Hey, thank you for having me. You have a good night. You bet. We'll take a short break. We'll be back in just a minute.
good stories do not touch that dial because we're going to hear one today credible story peter waller is in my studio and we're going to talk about what god is doing in his life and what god is doing through his ministry and uh, the impact he's having on a lot of people he is a graduate of the university of northwestern it's been a few years since he's been here but uh, we're awfully glad that he's back on campus here in studio with me peter welcome oh it's great to be here you graduated how long ago, or don't we talk numbers that uh, way? 1987. Okay. I was a prodigy. I think I was 10 or 11. Or... <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, and I, I've heard your story, and I'm fascinated with what you're doing and what God has um, inspired you to do, and that's some of the personal challenges you've had as well. I want to put those two together and mm-hmm. say, despite obstacles and, and circumstances, you can still do incredible work for God's kingdom. Well, by, by his grace, we, yeah. we feel really blessed yeah. to literally be here and just to continue to serve him and reflect Christ in any I way we it. can. I love it. Now you are with Source Minnesota? Yeah, Source MN. Source MN, and I want everyone to hear what that is. Yeah, um, sourcemn.org, uh, the 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 um, website. Uh, we are an outreach uh, to the at-risk and unreached in the city, bringing hope and opportunity in the city. Uh, we have uh, re- reached out to homeless youth, uh, teens in prostitution, women in trafficking, those impoverished. We've been in the South Minneapolis has been our hub, although we've done outreaches across the the nation. Um, but our focus is to be able to help um, be bringing Jesus to, <coughs> to individuals. Um, to bring opportunity through physical needs, uh, through um, casework, uh, through practical things, as well as be a voice of God's love and forgiveness and mm-hmm. uh, introduce them to Christ. Um, uh, we like to be known as the people who feed you and pray for you in South that. Minneapolis. I love that. Talk about this ministry and how it started and how you were uh, feeding at one point about 60 families, but then Kapawi had exploded. Yeah, we, we that that area of Lake Street that really got hit by the riots in, in South You're Minneapolis. You're talking about the George Floyd yes, um, in 2020. episode and the riots that ensued. Yep. And that's the epicenter of where you were. Yeah, yeah. where we've been for 25 exactly. years. And so, um, you know, um, part right now we're doing a million pounds of food, but the, the story behind that is really we've had an urban arts center there for 20 years, a community center. And in 2019, um, we just saw, looking at more of the needs of the neighborhood, we had been doing a food shelf for about 18 years, um, serving about 60 families a month, about 20 tons a year. So a, a kind of a small twice a month thing that, that we could serve our local neighbors to. And we just felt glad that we need to up the ante on that. And those communities around Lake Street specifically um, have gone 5% to 30% Latino um, represents some of the poorest of the poor um, in South Minneapolis. And so we started to do what we needed to do to increase that food shelf and food distribution with working on our commercial kitchen, um, working on increasing occupancy, ADA bathrooms, fire doors, um, which um, put us to the spring of 2020 of getting our, our final inspections done. 
And uh, we got our final inspections done just in time for them to say shelter in place. You can't have anybody in the building. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's an obstacle. There's a little bit of an obstacle. And so we weren't quite sure of that. But in a very short amount of time, um, we're making literally thousands of meals a week, um, 10,000 a month for the homeless and those in poverty. Because the need of, exploded, didn't it? Exactly. And just the drop in centers for the homeless, um, some of the, the shelter were stopped being able to take people. The shelters had had to keep people all day long and they they had a food need and so we we're able to uh, um, be able to be a conduit for the body of Christ had dozens of volunteers come help us and start producing uh, meals um, at the rate of, of literally going from about 200 meals a month to uh, two two three thousand meals every week during that season last spring mm. and then that led to May and May we we got our final um, final uh, food shelf inspections done. And we had already circled the first weekend of June to be an increase of about tenfold um, to serve about 400 families a month, 100 a week, Mm -hmm. with our food shelf from our community center. Um, something that we thought was doable. God had a little different plans. What was that um, plan? Well, that that pursued with the the, the riots that happened, um, yeah. unfortunately, after George Floyd, the last five, five days of May. So Within a few days, instead of our grand reopening being from our Urban Arts Center, it was from the Kmart parking lot um, Where you right on the Lake Street. Food. Where we distributed food. Yeah. In summer of 2020, with the help of hundreds of volunteers of the Body of Christ, we did over 200 tons of food. Wow. And, and uh, um, it was, you know, our food shelf guy kind of shot out of a cannon with that. And since, we've continued at a rate of about 60 tons a month. Um, this year, we're going to go over a million pounds of food, and, and we've, we've uh, branded it the Minneapolis Manna, um, doing a, a million pounds of food every year, which is the pace that we want to continue. And uh, for, for we, uh, we got to the halfway mark at the end of June for 2021, and we went over 600,000 um, pounds of food. That's impressive. And so we're on that pace. Yeah. Now, when we were chatting before the interview started, you were mentioning... When people come in, you can say, we'll feed you, and then what can we pray for you? Absolutely. So what was that expression again you used? Um, we like to be known with the people that feed you and pray for you. Pre- feed you and pray for you. And then talk about some of the spiritual fruit that's come out of the people that walk in your door. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, our heart is to always be ready to give the reason for your hope and to do it with gentleness and respect. And, uh, um, you know, and, and with that, when we just simply ask people, hey, do you understand what's going on here? Is it your first time? Um, what's going on? Can we pray for you? Um, did you how did you survive this last year? And uh, um, a lot of people, and if people aren't open to that, that's fine, but a lot of people are very open to that. When There's something about when a community goes through a community trauma, that there, there's a vulnerability. And we still get individuals that will pray for and and offer that will open up to us. And I think no one's asked him that question. You know, it's been a year later. And we've talked, you know, just this summer, we talked to people who watched the building across the street from them burn down and wondering if their building was going to be next. Mm. You know, we were able to give 300 bikes this summer through free bikes for kids. And, um, you know, talk to grandmas who are so thankful because them telling us um, they broke into our windows on the first floor. We just ran up to the upper floors and they took everything we had. Um, and now I have a bike I can give my granddaughter. Ah, um, we've had people show up this last month that say, you know what? I don't want any food. Can you pray for me again? Really? You know, um, May and June, we had 70 people make first time commitments to follow Christ. And so, um, and it's just really been a, a blessing to, to do that. We, that's always been our MO for 25 years. 
And in the midst of all the darkness, that still very much remains in the rebuild of Minneapolis. A lot of the crime and violence is very underreported. Um, there's record numbers. And uh, it remains, you know, um, just a significant hotbed. Um, but with that, the amount of people that are open to darkness, I mean, I'm sorry, that are open to the gospel, even though the darkness is there, mm-hmm. is, is just, I've never seen it in ministry. Um, wow. And it's just really feel that, that um, you know, for many years, God has really provided for us, but has planted source for a time just such as this. Wow. It's, it's a wonderful uh, report on what is going on in your ministry. And I love the fact that people are knowing where to come to get fed and also to get prayed for. And now there's people returning, asking for more prayer and new decisions are being made for Christ. And it's uh, it's a lot of hard work, Peter, I would think. I mean, this is not the most glamorous ministry. It, it uh, um, yes, it, it is. But it's also, we are really blessed um, we've been supported by the body of Christ, um, different businesses and foundations for many years. Yeah. Um, our heart is to be a conduit to the body of Christ. You know, we have a small staff of a dozen, 14 individuals. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for, for when we see, you know, once a month we turn to the Kmart parking lot um, and we get about 100 volunteers um, from the, mainly from local churches to come join us um, and do that. And so, you know, th- you always are able to do or only can do what you can do. You know, um, and if you'd have told me in the beginning of 2019, prepare to be given a million pounds of food a year away, I would have said, forget it. <laughs> That's like too much. Um, we can't do it. That would be too stressful. Mm-hmm. We don't have the resources. We don't have the facility. Um, but God had a plan for that. Yeah. And just the way he orchestrated it and the way it's happening went went beyond what I even believed after a couple decades of ministry, what we were capable of. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to give glory to Christ and, you know, just continue to do what we can to, to shed his light. And I want to take back what I said. What you're doing is a glamorous ministry. Mm. It's about as glamorous as it comes. Mm. You're meeting people at their lowest point, usually hungry um, and homeless. And that is the most beautiful piece of ministry ever. So mm. thank you for that. Um, Amen. So uh, I want to talk, too, about your personal obstacles and challenges because they're not small. (laughs) And I find it interesting that these two tie in together because not only do you have a ministry kind of in the neighborhood where there was lots of writing, but you also lived in that neighborhood. Yeah. So you had lots of activity and you had a lot of personal challenges. And I think we're going to take a break and we come back. I want you to tell your story of what happened to you and where you are today because uh, I think it's powerful, and it's going to be a great encouragement to many. Mm. So that is what we're going to continue uh, to talk about. Uh, Peter Waller is my guest. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Peter Wooler is my guest in studio, and I don't believe I've ever had 
any guest in studio with dreadlocks as long as yours. <laughs> the dreaded pastor is yeah, uh, what that's I go a, by. Yeah, a nickname. The, yeah. Dr- the dreaded pastor, yeah. which, and it's because of your dreadlocks, yeah. which are very cool, by the way. <laughs> How do you maintain those? Uh, surprisingly, um, you don't have to do a lot with them once okay. you get them established. Okay. So after I got past year six or seven, yeah. they're pretty much there. Okay. Um, maybe once every two, three years, you go for what they call dreadlock maintenance. Okay. And Is that so, all your hair? It's all my real hair. That's yep. unbelievable. Vision and perseverance, Bill. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, over 20, I got hair here over 20 years old. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and the washing process, does that... Vinegar. Vinegar and water. Yeah. About 10 to 1 ratio of, of water to vinegar. That I did just kind of keeps the scalp clean, but yeah, um, but yeah, but no no soap or no shampoo. Really? Yep. That's very... I See, I know so little, <laughs> um, but I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to understand the dreadlocks. It's, it's very <laughs> we cool. We can do another show on that. Okay. It's very I'll, cool. I'll tell you about getting lice out of dreadlocks sometime. Oh, no. So. We'll pass on that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's go back to uh, uh, Peter is with... Uh, source MN, and they are making an incredible impact on the community. And I'm encouraged to know that this ministry can be duplicated around the country. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like we've had the opportunity to do different outreaches, and um, we do a homeless youth outreach. There's a lot of migration of vagabonds and modern-day travelers, homeless youth, to Florida in the winter. Um, along with our snowbirds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the woods of Ocala, they'll gather in January and February. And we've been a part of a Jesus Kitchen there for many years that just basically feeds people. Um, again, wants to be known to f- the people who feed you and pray for you. Yeah. And so... I tease, the, I tease everyone that you had an incredible story. So I, I have to make good on this because I, I think your personal story and what you had to endure and what you've been going through is fascinating and also uh, to God be the glory. Mm, so amen. take us on that trip. Well, you're referring to um, 2017. Um, I got diagnosed with a stage four cancer, um, lower bowel cancer. Uh, and uh, in August of that year, just um, somewhat out of the blue, and uh, by November, after chemo, after surgeries, they told me I had 30 to 60 days. Um, and so we were in that season. I'm going to steal the title of your producer, Rosie, of uh, praying for a miracle while planning a funeral. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we uh, um, were wondering if this was going to be it. I had an older sister pass away from cancer in 2009, and I've seen that journey before. And so, um, but... Um, over the next year, we just started seeing slow a slow turnaround. Um, they had once they took out my larger tumor in my in my gut. Um, a month later, I had tumors in every organ in my torso, and uh, the people at the Mayo Clinic said, "You know, this is probably it. Let's put you on a case study." There was mixed reviews if that case study ever helped me, um, but I, I just uh, went forward, um, changed a lot of things about my diet, started doing a lot of different supplements and alternative stuff and then at the same time just saw a slow um, transition and by 2019 we were down to one tumor weren't sure if that was still cancerous and uh, we got to the beginning of 2020 and they said let's take out this tumor we think it's time and uh, we're going to do that in the spring of 2020 and then that got delayed because there was no non-life-threatening surgeries at that time with COVID and then in May um, got that removed, and for the first time was told there's no cancer in your body. Wow. Unbelievable. And so it, it was. It, and it really, 
you know, um, people, you know, during that time, people would say, keep battling. And there were times where I wanted to respond with, I wish I could battle. <laughs> you know, when in my experience with cancer, it's like it, it happened to me. I, there was nothing I know that I did to receive the cancer. And then God's healing and grace in a way also just happened to me. There, there was nothing I could do for that healing. Um, we, we had plenty of prayer times. Um, you know, th- there were times when I, I, you know, could tell you lots of stories about feeling the power of the Holy Spirit on me, just totally confident I was going to go in and get a scan and things were going to be gone. And during that 2017, every scan was worse. Every test was worse. And uh, um, walking through that. And, and so coming to a place of wondering, okay, God, maybe this is going to be it. And just not being sure, you know, and, uh, but just continuing to want to walk with God. And, and, you know, through that too, Bill, we have had the privilege of walking with so many different people in their cancer journeys. Um, and uh, when you go through something like this, you know, I, I get two or three calls a month from people who know someone, know, have a good friend that have just been diagnosed. And to be um, welcomed into a vulnerable state when people mm. are in that and to be able to share the testimony, be able to pray, um, but also just, you know, beyond a supernatural healing, um, I really feel we had a supernatural peace that God was with us. Not every moment of the day, mm-hmm. you know, you still go through the range of what's going on. Um, but that supernatural peace of knowing that a supernatural God is, is with you through that, um, you know, th- those are the times like no other time in my life um, that my faith became very real to me. When I think of the ministry of feeding, reaching out to the homeless, people who are in uh, sex trafficking, a- addicts, and you're trying to serve them food and reach them for Christ, then you get hit with this wallop. And yeah. you, you think there's some people that would say, Lord, look what I'm <laughs> trying to do your work. Why would this come into my into my life? And why this? You know, I... Again, I, I think my experience through my see my sister okay. walk with Christ. And there was times we prayed, and actually we saw supernatural healings with my sister, and tumors completely vanish. Mm. And then six months later, they came back. And, and there was a powerful thing seeing supernatural healing, but then I also saw my sister walk to her death embracing Christ. Yeah. When she felt, okay, this is it. it, it it's time. And to pray with her through that. That really had a much bigger impact than I really ever knew, um, you know, with that and, and walking with that. And so, you know, and, and, and part of that, you know, too, as, um, you know, in that, in that beginning season of uh, 2017, we were the victim resource coordinators for the Super Bowl in February of 2018. I have been with Source since 1995. We have worked with homeless youth and teens in prostitution in the 90s. 2010, we started anti-trafficking, transitional home and program. Fall of 2017, for a small ministry, the local police department, Minneapolis, was told by the Super Bowl committee they needed to have a more national organization to uh, be their victim resource coordinators for trafficking. And they said, no, we trust Source. We have worked with them, and um, we know they're going to show up, and we know what they do. Wow. Um. We were getting ready fall of 2017 to to have the biggest spotlight, to be the most busiest I've ever been in ministry. 
in my adult life. Um, and then, bam, I am completely, you know, taken out of the game. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and, and again, it was like, well, God, this is all yours. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of different things that went around that. Um, I spent, a, I had a lot of time to pray for what was going on, but I'm used to being kind of the voice and the front person for our ministry. And I can no longer be that. Um, we had great people. Um, we, we, we hosted an emergency um, women's shelter with Hope Community Church downtown during that week. Um, did a lot of just significant things with the FBI and local authorities. Um, we still continued relationships and work with local authorities on different operations. Um, and and it, it was such a beautiful thing that happened. Um, and, and it happened without me. You know, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> You're a big God, man. You're God a big can man do stuff without on, me. On radio, yeah. but, but truthfully, it, it, it was an example of where we are weak, he is strong. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, when you came back, Peter, too, from your major surgery, I find this interesting piece of the story uh, is like the day after George Floyd is, is, yeah. is killed, and now you've got massive disruption in your own neighborhood. Yeah. we, we uh, you're just trying to recoup from major surgery. Yeah. We, we live just down the street from that corner where George Floyd's life was taken in. And so we had to go through alleys yeah. um, to get, just get to our house yeah. because roads were either blocked off by police or protesters. And that, that I drive by that, I drove by that corner every day, you know, to and um, back and forth from our, our urban arts center. More um, than that, you went into that store regularly for? Yeah. Oh, for the cheap cream soda. That's what I heard you say, the cheap yeah. cream soda. And yeah. I wanted it. 99 cent cream soda, A&W cream soda was, was at Cup Foods. Yeah. You're and making so. me thirsty now. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right, Peter, there's obviously people that are hearing your story and they're, they're amazed at God's goodness in your life. And the fact that so far you've had incredible healing, mm. right? So, and you have not slowed down one second in your desire to serve your king. So this is a credible story, mm. but I want you to encourage others who might be feeling like, Ooh, Lord, how can I be of service? Look what's in my, look yeah. what's in my life. Yeah. And, and, you know, the main thing, I just want to encourage people to know that God is there and um, God doesn't forget and God sees you where you're at. And, you know, we know lots of big Bible stories, right, that are written down. Um, a lot of times, if you, if you read the whole context, right, there's 20 years between one instance to the next with, you know, with, with the big patriarchs. And, um, you know, so there's times when all of a sudden there's going to be these incredible supernatural moments, but then there's a lot of time in between them. Um, the power of prayer. Yeah, you know, the, the power of coming around those um, who are without, who seem to be neglected, whether they're what our society looks at as the homeless or those in poverty or whether they're the neighbors in the rich suburban neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's so much loneliness um, and there's, there's so much individuals um, that feel that we're, they're without God. And, in, and when you're a person that's in their vicinity that they can relate to, um, that are part of, that can speak out um, hope, and God's forgiveness, God's love to individuals. Yeah, it, it's a significant thing. It can make eternal differences. Yeah, I'm inspired by your story and the faith of your sister. Can, we only have a couple of minutes left. Would you tell me a little bit about the family you grew up in? Um, I grew up 
with a Southern Baptist preacher as a father here in the north. Okay. I'm listening to KTIS. Um, was always on the radio dial. Chuck Swindoll. Okay. Um, I, I, I know I've heard hours of Chuck Swindoll sermons. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, um, uh, six kids. Uh, I mean, I'm one of six, yeah. you know, in doing that. Um, so I really appreciate my evangelical, solid, biblical foundation roots. Um, and, uh, you know, I, one of the ladies that came to our, our home, our, our wedding reception, you basically said, uh, um, you know what? I remember you're the kid who was concerned about the third verse. And I uh, wasn't sure what she meant by that. And she said, you know, when you grew up, we would sing from a hymnal. And at the end of the service, we'd always sing the first, second, and fourth verse. We didn't have time for that 60 seconds in there. <laughs> and, and so she said, um, what you're doing with Source is you're concerned with for those who are left out. And that's what I saw God plant in you when you were a kid. And so that I really verse. appreciate that those foundations of that small local church um, that uh, I think had a lot to do with my formation. Yeah. So we're in 2021 and we're looking beyond what's, uh, what is needed to rebuild the city. We've got about a minute left. Uh, so I would say go on to the Source website. Um, our, our passion now really is the next couple years is going to be significant for decades to come. When the city goes through what it went through in 2020, the increase, you know, the void that's there has been filled by a lot of violence and crime that's underreported that, that is still very much there. Um, our hope and our prayers so that would not settle in mm-hmm. and that light would come into darkness. And so, you know, we're not in the headlines anymore for the yeah. fires, thank God. Mm-hmm. But I just want to encourage people to remember Minneapolis Amen. this year and next year. Um, come on down and volunteer. Bring yep. your youth group. Um, we have lots of opportunity. At sourcemn.com? Dot org. Dot org. Sourcemn.org. Peter Wohler's been my guest. Thank you so much. Oh, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.